The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for your commitment to keep showing up. As I mentioned that first week, we really uh, work together, you know, to build this culture, this community for this eight-week period to commit to these teachings, doing our best to study a little bit at least. Some of you maybe have more time to study, to do the formal sitting practice, to contemplate the teachings where we use the ideas from the talks and from your study, then to inform how we show up, how we perceive the present moment. Because we need study these ideas as a counterweight to our habits of perception. Right? So it's interesting, a lot of times it can seem, well, why do we need all these words? Well, the mind needs something. You know, we, the mind is mostly operating on the level of concept, right? So it needs a concept as a counterweight to, in a way, illuminate the habit of selfing, of always perceiving our bodily sensations and perceiving thought and perceiving hearing and perceiving whatever the experience might be with that frame of me and mine, you know, the selfing. So... We have these instructions, these pointing out instructions to cultivate, to develop a different habit of perceiving without the mind dependent, attached to the idea of self, immediately imputing that or projecting that onto our bodily experience or mental experience. So before I go into the talk tonight, just checking in about the guided meditation, both in terms of questions about the instructions that we've been following the last couple of weeks, and also people just checking in about some of the experiences. What, if anything, are you learning from using these words, these instructions, pointing out instructions, and how is it affecting how you perceive sound, perceive sensation, perceived thought. Any reflections to share with the group? Hi, just a question on at the last the last phase when we were noticing thoughts. Um, without sort of a neutral grounding object like my breath, I sometimes confuse myself as to what I should be doing. In other words, um, you know, uh, do I do I follow the thought or leave it alone or I, it's, I'll leave it there. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And it's totally okay to ground the attention in something like the whole body or the breath or even hearing because it's hard to find the right kind of effort. And the thing is, if, you know, the, the important thing would be if we use the breath to have a to really cultivate a openness so the mind the attention in the mind is really interested in the space of the present moment and it's using the movement of the breath to keep it familiar with this, the space of the present moment because like i mentioned in the instruction you know if the mind is just attending to one thing it it will necessarily miss what else is happening. Really, the object is the openness, the space of the present moment, and the m- sensations of the breath or the sensations of the whole body or the s- experience of hearing is just a, s- a useful vehicle to keep that open space of the present mind or present moment in mind. Does that make sense? And then when there is more of or less of that sense of openness, then quite naturally the mind will recognize a thought. And it may feel, may feel like you're a little bit behind, but don't worry about that. That sense is also a thought. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm behind. I just missed that thought. It's a thought. 
Because what we're really interested is that thoughts aren't much of anything. We're interested in really getting to know thoughts for what they are, and the pointing out instruction is they're not much of anything. So when you're starting to have that perception that thoughts aren't much of anything, then it's sort of nice because we've got the pointing out and then we're kind of going, yeah, my subjective experience seems to uh, align with the Buddhist pointing out instructions. Just describe my own neuroses for a moment. I mean, at night, I sometimes have a hard time falling asleep and one of my techniques is to just sort of follow the thoughts um, and sort of touch them lightly. And it actually relaxes me. And uh, I find that the thoughts kind of come and go and come and go. Now, tonight, when, when you were watching me, uh, I, I, I felt like I had more of an assignment. Um, yeah. And it was harder to just relax and let those thoughts come and go. It is, which is why probably you had the intuition to use to go to the breath or something, some object that the mind knows how to relax with and be spacious with. And then just... There's just a thread in the mind that, oh yeah, we're paying attention to thought. It doesn't need to be a heavy command in the mind, right? And it's already because of the instructions that interest, you know, that assignment, so to speak, is already there in the mind. So it might not need any sort of heavy shooting, like I should be noticing thought. That it's not easy. So generally, we notice thinking not so much when we make it a heavy agenda but when we just planted the seed, right? We get the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. Notice how ephemeral thoughts are. And then we've got that little, the impression that those words leave in the mind stream. And then we just, whatever way works for us, trusting the openness of awareness, of present moment awareness, to confirm or not that suggestion that thoughts aren't, are pretty wispy, insubstantial mental happenings when we really look at it. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Other reflections? Yeah, we'll go over here. Yeah, I just noticed that uh, in this in particular, or even through the week, that it's the body has this, it's kind of a shimmering, almost tingling holographic, uh, rendering to it in the meditation and um, almost to the point of like parts of it feeling it kind of coming in and out a little bit like it's um, changing a lot uh, and then the second piece that I noticed is I really started noticing parts where my attention wasn't it's like that part wasn't even there <laughs> in my in, in the world of like my experience if I'm reading a book, I don't even the body doesn't even exist. And then when I really pay attention to it, or I put my attention in different spots, I can see that more clearly, and then the rest of it kind of falls away. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And I I like what uh, Rick was saying that because it's it's both when we bring that balanced, open attention to the body, it its appearance is radically different than what we presume the body is. And when we're not paying attention to the body, it doesn't exist as we presume the body is, right? I mean, when we, if we actually had a statistic, like how many moments today did the body appear as we expect it to appear? Solid, real, right? Because mostly today, you know, percentage-wise, we were oblivious to the body. We were obsessed about some thought. And... The body didn't exist in those moments as a solid functioning thing. And then when we're really attentive in a balanced, spacious way with the body, as I mentioned in the instruction, you know, and people will describe it in different ways, like Rick described it, but there's really a sense of what we our direct subjective experience of the body when the mind is really balanced and open is a is a lot like space. Or it's kind of like openness itself. There are things we call sensations, but they are kind of like thoughts, right? Even I have some really 
intense sensations here. You know, they, they, it seems pretty, you know, solid. But the more balanced and the less aversive the attention to those sensations, right? Because I have, there's a habit in the mind to not like that tension there along the, that rope or cable <laughs> that connects the shoulder to the head, to the skull. Twisted steel, you know. There's a tendency in the mind to not like that sensation, but when the mind slips into a deeper equi- uh, equanimity balance where it's aware but not projecting anything onto the sensations, that twisted steel disappears as twisted steel. And there's still a sense of something, but that something isn't much of anything. And that's just sort of interesting be- to, ch- uh, to learn, to train the mind to trust the actual subjective experience of the body more than I have some chronic tension that's like a, a steel cable here. Because that idea is compelling. But I want to train my mind to trust the actual experience, that sometimes it's like twisted steel and sometimes it's not much of anything. And then, see, that actually changes the idea that it's a lot, that it's twisted steel, because the idea that it's twisted steel doesn't make sense if in some moments it's not much of anything. Right? Part of the idea that this is twisted steel is that it's consistently twisted steel. So when we start having moments of the body being empty, more shimmery, shimmering, I think Rick said, more ephemeral, then it's a profound challenge to the fixed idea that we've just picked up through our conditioning process that we have about the body. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Other thoughts? I will go here and then to Mike. Yeah, hi, I'm Adam. Um, yeah, the, over the past couple of weeks, just kind of thinking about uh, some of these teachings have um, brought on some reflections that I've been um, pretty grateful for. Um, just, you know, throughout my life, there's been, um, you know, kind of a visceral embodied self, the myself, who um, has been, you know, going through life, making mistakes and things like that. And then there comes into being a, a different self who is imagined like this person who had I made all correct decisions done everything well you know like this person that that would exist or uh, that 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 I compare myself to so um, but that person is ultimately fictitious and not real um, and that's and just realizing that the person I'm comparing, I've, I'm comparing myself to that person and that this self is not real and that all these things that I'm just inheriting based on um, my, this different conditioning and habits and things that are unfolding, um, if that's not real either, that then that's uh, also optional in addition to the, the other person that that person's being compared to. So it's like this... You know, just realizing that my life has been this dance between these two people, one that's been making some good decisions and and a lot of poor decisions and just seeing the results of that and then continually comparing and saying, well, now i am got to do this. I can't do this. Now things are going to change. Like in the cycle of kind of shame and doubling down and things like that that have been going going back and forth are... um, both totally optional, so <laughs> it's just very. Um, there's a lot of freedom in that, and then when they, and then realizing different times what triggers each of those selves, what are the circumstances that, what am I looking at in certain situations when that person comes around, like these two alarm bells that that ring, in what circumstances those come about. And just pay, learning to pay attention to those and realize, okay, well, how did I get here? And then are there ways to come back? What are the techniques? And one has been gratitude and 
trying to find something that's um, to get out of the cycle, something that has been working. So, yeah, so number one, finding out that those two imagined selves are not real has been amazing and that um, that there is a way to not keep going around the circle and that there's different techniques that are continually unfolding is um, pretty cool to have a little space. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I'm going to pass it to Mike. Yeah, so I really appreciated kind of that twisted steel analogy. It resonated with me quite a bit. Um, approximately almost exactly a year ago, I found myself in a very dark space where, you know, I don't, I'm not the type, I'm not someone who, who um, suffers from, from depression, but I just had a lot going on in my life, a lot of loss, and I just, got in a very very fatalistic type mindset and it lasted for months and it felt like an eternity really um you know and I, I had enough wisdom to be like I need to kind of at the very least kind of up my practice here and try and not necessarily fix the problem but just kind of you know address it or shine some light on it and um you know, as a function of time, I think I, you know, I had support systems in my life that were kind of telling me, like, look, you know, it's not always going to be like this. Things are going to improve or change. And I wasn't really buying into that. It was like, no, this is, like, really bad. Like, there's just no <laughs> no, no way out of it. And I think I just had a lot of habit energy that kind of built that that narrative that was unpenetrable. Um, but really, um, what, what I really discovered kind of related to what you're saying about the twisted seal analogy is like just really just focusing on the experience itself and following, really following the individual moments throughout the day. Um, especially just actually, um, feeling tone, like the actual feeling in the body, really um i i had a couple moments where it was like whoa i'm i'm not actually experiencing that level of pain or that intensity of pain that i was feeling a moment ago and it kind of like shattered my whole reality it was like just there was no ignoring it it was like i couldn't get out of the narratives that were playing but through feeling my body, it was like the changes in, in how my body felt. It was like, it was kind of like, whoa, like, you, you know, I'm supposed to be really hurting here, and why is it not anymore? Like, it, th that loss of continuity um, really kind of was an awakening for me, and it's something that, you know, I helped me kind of get through that, that period of my life, and I've carried forward, and, like, I found the more that, it's just allowed me to lean into experience more and kind of trust. Um, <laughs> yeah, just just trust the process more. And it's like I just am now seeing more. I don't think circumstances are, have substantially changed necessarily. Certainly there have been changes. But more than anything, I'm just, just yeah, finding a lot of light, lightness and freedom in that Um in that lesson, I suppose, of like really not being as involved in, in kind of mental activity, you know, even though that is like kind of the conditioning and the wiring. But um, so thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mike. That's yep. really powerful. And that could be a nice homework assignment next week. Of course, we'll have small groups. So you might just notice like a little mindfulness spell goes off whenever you enter a little hell realm you know, a little physical, mental pain, something difficult's going on, whatever it might be. And then just notice, like when the mind is definitely in the story, as Mike was saying, attached to the mental activity, then notice that the hell realm looks and feels like a hell realm. It feels heavy, feels real, substantial, no way out, 
right? Trapped, oppressed. And then if we have at least a thread of our practice going, then listening to that voice, that practice voice that says, honey, you just need to start connecting to the moment as it actually is. Find your way back to noticing sound as something being known, sensation, something being felt, thought, just thought being known. There are just these momentary things being known. This is being known. And really trusting, um, connecting, trusting, relaxing with that reality, that more simple and direct and immediate reality of something being known, as opposed to whatever else the mind would be doing, identified with its thought that this is me and it's a really difficult experience. And just see if you're, you can confirm the insight that Mike was pointing to in his sharing. So we have a little time left. We haven't heard from any of female voices. I don't know if there's anybody in the room. Yeah, Julia, do you want to start? The way I've been practicing is um, um, would you talk a little more about, I think when we started the class, we were talking about intent or karmic intent or that's how it felt to me. Um, and I started practicing um, really trying to show up in each moment um, guess with love, but mostly what was the intention that I was showing up with. And I'm, I'm having a little trouble with these two types of instruction, like when I show up with the sort of intent that I, that's the way I'm calling it, um, and then the pay attention to the sounds, the body, the thoughts, um, and then the non-self. I don't know. I, I think maybe my head's we're not, we're not looking for non-self or not-self, right? We're just trying to connect with the way things are. And so that, that's important. And so we're just using three aspects of our experience, hearing, feeling sensation, noticing the arising and passing of thought. I mean, that's what Joseph's article pointed to as um, suggested contemplations. But really, it's just code for being awake to the way it is. and so, But we got these little three assignments, so it gives the doing mind something to do. Okay, now I'm supposed to be interested in hearing or I'm supposed to be interested. And that kind of you know gives the doing mind something to do. And then we realize that I'm always over-efforting and then I ricochet from over-efforting to not efforting and getting lost in thought. And so eventually we gain some competence. The way to be with hearing the way to be with sensation, the body, the way to be with thought is to really learn. It's a, it's a skill to learn to trust openness, right? The, so in a way, in a funny way, the object of awareness isn't so much hearing because it always sort of, the effort's a little off. So it's really more the object of the present, the object of awareness is the present moment. And that's what we find hearing being known or th- you know, the object is the present moment, and that's where we find sensations being known, what we call sensation or we call thought. So the intention is to connect with the present moment. And we need that intention because otherwise the mind is going to do what it is in the groove to do, mental proliferation basically, right? So as a counterweight to the force of habit, we cultivate an intention using you know, the instruction to be aware of hearing, but then learning like the only way to really be aware of hearing is to rest back in openness or to rest back in a present moment awareness. And there we find that hearing is already happening. And we find that awareness of body sensations already happening. And because the, the mind is in that more relaxed less agenda, less expectation, it can actually see the underlying nature of hearing, i.e. empty of self. The underlying nature of body, empty of self. It's not referring back to anything. It's just sensation being known, thinking being known. Yeah. 
Yeah. Any other voices? Yeah, all the way in the back. And I think we'll end with this. Maybe time at the end, too, for more comments, but I do want to cover a little bit. So I had a cool experience this week, which <laughs> is kind of not cool, but so I was in a situation and somebody was like really upset at me and like just yelling and yelling at me. And it was a work situation. I had to be all professional and cool. And I was sitting there. And so first, just my regular mindfulness kicked in. I'm like, okay, noticing myself on the chair and let's look, let's focus on some breathing and all of the, you know, just kind of just being aware of my sense of myself and all of a sudden this thing popped and it was like the greatest meditation experience <laughs> um that th- that that place you get to sometimes when you're lucky when you're meditating and it was like my mind was like a room a big room and the whole and it was like filled with the non-self i don't know how to describe it but like so that part of me that was like kind of freaking out and really uncomfortable with the anger just sort of melted away and i had this whole sense of freedom and I was like, and I was still, resp- I was still like able to respond to the person. And I, it was really weird. Now it's been a little hard since then, kind of dealing with the, like m- anger's hard for me. So it was kind of like, I'm having to deal with repercussions of like the thoughts want to come in and be freaked out about how that person yelled at me. Um, but in that moment of being in it, like I just felt this sweeping, like this big room and here's the non-self and it's all right. And all that's happening is this yelling and <laughs> yeah and and it might be just in terms of how you language it instead of here's the non-self here's the way that it is you know when the mind a uh, draw uh, abandons or drops its habit of projecting self a self-view self-centered view then it's like that big spacious room and everything becomes more workable because of that space that absence it's more about what's not there the mind isn't doing the selfing then it's like ordinary reality without the mind doing the selfing it's not a special place it's the ordinary space when the mind isn't doing the selfing yeah thanks so much for sharing that sounds really beautiful now one one thing just to play with a little bit is you know when more ordinary emotions are moving it's not so much trying to get back to the place as much as it is as you get closer to what you're feeling and what's moving in the moment, it's really more an act of confidence that that big room, that spacious room, is already here. right? So there's no place you've got to get back to. It's here. And the way you find it is by uh, not being afraid by the anger that's moving right now in your body and in your mind. Because it's it's happening in that vast, loving, wise space, and in which case the anger is workable, and your judgment about the anger is workable, and whatever else might come and go in that space is workable. That's really the flavor of that space of equanimity, that space of wisdom, that space of love. You know, you can people call it whatever they call it. But the experience is what it is, not the word we assign to it afterward when we're sharing with a group like this. Thanks for sharing with us. Maybe pass the mic back to the center in case we have time for more discussion at the end. But I do want to cover a little bit of territory. Um, Part setting us up for next week. So, thanks. So one thing, like I mentioned, to do next week is just to um, see this basic movement that we heard from a couple people in the sharings about, you know, because we will fall into hell realms. And remember, some of the hell realms we'll fall into will be because something good is happening to us. It's not always physical pain or emotional pain, but something exciting might happen, and we might find that we're getting really tight or contracted because something so-called good is happening in our lives. But we're in a tight place, and we feel constricted, and we feel oppressed, and we don't see a way out of that tension. And then we'll remember the instruction that 
you know, freedom, the freedom of that's related to the Buddhist teachings on anatta, not self. It's just a matter of choosing the mind, choosing to connect with the way it is, right? And so connecting with the way it is, but the teaching is really in support of connecting with the way it is. It's not like we're trying to put a different spin on the present moment. We just don't want to get the way that we're going to connect with the present moment to be corrupted by our habit. So in a way, the teachings are not self or a counterweight to prevent the mind from falling into the habit of self-view, self-centered view, right? So instead of thinking of not-self as the way forward, it's the abandoning of personality view, of self-centered tendencies, of projecting, always projecting a me, a mine, on our experiences. That's a chronic habit. So the Buddha creates this counterweight, which isn't true. He likens it to a raft. It's something to use to get across the flood the sort of swirling habits of selfing that we have. A liking, our likings, our dislikings, our fears, our hopes. That's the swirl of the flood. And so the Buddha gives us a raft, these teachings, these pointing out instructions. This is one of the Buddhist nuns from their Pali Canon. The Jira. <coughs> Bhikkhuni Vajira, after her alms round, went into the blind man's grove, a place in the woods at the time of the Buddha, and sat down at the root of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, right? Mara is the personification of our self-centered habits, the habits of the mind. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the Bhikkhuni Vajira, desiring to make her fall away from concentration, from that steadiness of mind, approached her and addressed her in verse. Do your bad habits address you in verse? (laughs) (laughs) By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of this being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Right? The mind comes up with all these questions that it thinks it has to answer. Then Vajira, understanding that Mara was speaking, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in her, replied to Mara in verses, Why now do you assume a being? Mara, is that your speculative view? This is a heap of sheer formations, right? Just thoughts, mental formations, mental constructions. This is a heap of sheer formations. Here no being is found. This heap of mental activity doesn't refer back. There's mental activity, sure, because I see it arising and passing right here in the present moment. But the presumption that it refers back to a solid, permanent me, that's not found, right? My mind can be wild. My mind can be neurotic. My mind can be sublime and beautiful. But I never find the me that that sublime state, that neurotic state refers back to. I just find the neurotic activity, I find the wholesome activity, I find the sublime activity, but I never find the me that it refers back to. As uh, Buddha Gosa, one of the early Buddhist uh, saints or well-known teachers, several centuries after the time of the Buddha, many centuries after the time of the Buddha, I think maybe the third century CE, CEE, what is it, CE, Thanks. Um, said, you know, suffering is, no sufferer can be found. Yes, there's doing, but no doer is found. Right? You could just expand. Thinker is, thinking is, but no thinker can be found. Sensor, you know, sensing is, but no one who's sensing the body can be found. So we're not, like, we're not saying that this experience isn't real, we're just saying that what this experience is, is this experience being known, not more than that. We're not presuming it's more than our direct, immediate, subjective experience. We're not negating our experience. 
we're really honoring it as something being known. This is, you know, the living of my life right here, that I, what I'm knowing. Because it's important, because it can sound, these teachings can sound like we're negating something. No, here no being is found, and she goes on. Just as with an assemblance of, assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates exist, the activity of the body and the mind, that's the aggregates, so when the aggregates exist, there is the convention of being. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. And that's really great. The only thing we're letting go of is suffering. We don't lose anything that's real. Like in this process of doing the practice of awakening, it's not like we have to let go of anything. We're just letting go of projections, habits, mental constructions that aren't anything more than what they are. We're just coming into alignment with what's always been true. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhakuni Vajira, Bhakuni just means a Buddhist nun, the Bhakuni Vajira knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. When uh, my partner and co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers here, uh, she did this, I think I mentioned in previous groups, that she did this um, contemplative uh, autopsy. She spent a week um, in Colorado Springs. There's this well-known person, Gil Hen- Hensley, Headley? I think it's Headley. But anyway, something like that. Who uh, He was a Catholic priest, um, but he really got interested in the body, and he does these contemplative autopsies. He calls them uh, integral anatomy. And they had three bodies and 70 folks, and they dissected the bodies over the period of a week. And these bodies didn't have formaldehyde, which evidently makes a big difference. And he has some videos online, and if you look at our webpage, you'll you'll be interested, like, why does Mark put videos of a dissection when we're talking about the Buddhist teachings on not-self. Well, it's just interesting, like like that habit of projecting self on body, on the mental image, the idea of body. But it's really interesting when we, and I'm sure many of you have seen dead bodies, not just human bodies, but other bodies of other animals. But when we see dead bodies... It's sort of, we're not used to seeing a body that's not animated by life, by, you know, some mind. So it's just really interesting because then we realize that the body isn't self. Because there's the body, right? But it's clearly, when you see a corpse, for example, it's clearly not self. And that's a shocking thing if you've been around a parent or a friend in the dying process. And when you're with, when you hang out with the corpse, there's this very disconcerting experience for most of us humans because we're there with a body that's, in terms of our direct experience, it's not a self anymore. And that sort of begs this question like, oh, so this, but it isn't, the body isn't the only thing that we use to support the sense of a me and mine, right? But it's one of the things that we do. And so we can do the contemplation we did in the guided meditation where we're just being aware of sensation. But we can also use that contemplation of the body dying. um, And just to kind of get that sense of, you know, what is, what is the body? It's not self. It's just this kind of heap. And we have this teaching called the aggregates that the Buddha used quite often. The heaps. The heaps of physicality. Right? It's just that 
activity of hearing and activity of seeing and the activity of sense, you know, the tactile experience and smelling and tasting, physical activity, the heap of the body, and we have the heap, heaps of the mind, the perceiving, the feeling, tone, the mental constructions, the consciousness itself, the knowing itself. We have these activity of the body and mind. And it really, when we are in our mindfulness practice, they're really experienced as a movement. This is from one of the early influential books, uh, Buddhism Coming to the West. Some of you maybe read it a while back. Um, Wahula, I mean, Wapola Wahula, this Buddhist monk, Sri Lankan monk, What the Buddha Taught is the name of the book. And this is the chapter on the First Noble Truth. And he's quoting the Buddha here. O Brahmana, it is just like a mountain river flowing far and swift, taking everything along with it. There is no moment, no instant, no second when it stops flowing, but it goes on flowing and continuing. So Brahmana is the human life, like a mountain river. And then he writes, as the Buddha told this person, the world is in a continuous flux and is impermanent. One thing disappears, conditioning the appearance of the next in a series of cause and effect. There is no unchanging substance in them. There is nothing behind them that can be called the permanent self. Individuality or anything that can be, that can in reality be called I. And so it may make more sense, like the sense of self is really more about this appearance because clearly there is the appearance of me and the appearance of my body, right? My space here, my notes, my thought. So the me and mine is something. What is that something? And the answer to that is found in our direct experiencing not to try to figure it out philosophically. So when we have that experience that we call self, or me or mine, I-making, mind-making, as we say in the Buddhist tradition, which is a very common experience. We had it hundreds and hundreds of times today, that self-selfing experience, right? So as a practitioner, we're interested in answering the question of what that is what's just what that is. It's that immediate moment of there being the appearance of a me, of a permanent me to which this experience refers. That's just what it is. And that experience of selfing, of having that sense, this is mine, you hurt my feelings. But when we really see that, sense that projection as a present moment experience, we see that it shows up, there's a feeling being felt, there's some maybe a mental image or certainly some content, a thought being known, thoughts being known. And that's all we can say about it. And there's a sense that it refers back, but that's just a thought and a feeling being known. And so don't try to stop selfing from happening get interested in what selfing is. It's just that experience, but it isn't more than that experience. That's, a, that's an important thing because otherwise we, we can get a little neurotic in trying to stop selfing, which is a selfing project. You know, we kind of have a, from a point of view of self, of a sense of a me, we get attracted to the idea of a me that doesn't have self. You see, it gets really twisted. So the whole process is coming into alignment with, with the way it is, what's always been and always will be. Right? We're just coming into alignment with the way it is. But we do have these pointing out instructions, like where we were being told about selfing, so we're more likely to see it and because, well, what is this selfing, actually? What is it in terms of my experience right now, right here and now? 
in terms of being open, what is it? What's well, just this yucky feeling, being a little tight, a little self-conscious, a little anxious, or whatever the underlying feeling tone is, unpleasantness, and the content, mental contact, the mental formations, the perception, being known, that's the consciousness piece. And then it's always replaced by the next moment, whatever that experience is. So whatever it is, it's emotion, it's a flow, as that teacher just said. This is another discourse from the Buddha where the Buddha is talking to Venerable Sariputta, who approached the Buddha. And the Buddha says to Sariputta, his one of his chief disciples, <coughs> whether I teach the Dhamma in brief or whether I teach it in detail or whether I teach it both in brief and in detail, those who a- understand it are hard to find. <laughs> I don't feel sorry for the Buddha, really. <laughs> Sariputta says, Now, O blessed one, is the time for it. Now, sublime one, is the time for the blessed one to teach the Dhamma in brief and to teach it in detail and to teach it both in brief and in detail. There will be those who will understand these teachings. Right? So he's kind of encouraging the Buddha, don't give up on us. <laughs> you know, Share what you have come to understand. Well then, Sariputta, thus one should train oneself. Okay, so the Buddha is going to tell us. We shall not entertain any eye-making, mind-making, or underlying tendency to conceit, either in regard to this body or in regard to all external objects. And we shall not enter and dwell, and we shall enter and dwell in the liberation of mind, liberation of heart, liberation by wisdom, so that we are no longer subject to eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit. That is how one should train oneself. When Sariputta, a practitioner, has no more eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit, either in regard to the body or external objects, and when one thus enters and dwells in the liberation of the mind and heart, liberation by wisdom, wisdom just means seeing things as they are, one is then called a practitioner who has cut off craving, removed the fetters, one who by breaking through conceit has made an end to suffering. And in a really ordinary way, you know, just ordinary physical pain. This is a nice thing about just sitting still for 45 minutes or whatever your sitting time is at home, 30 minutes, hour. And, you know, at some point the body isn't perfectly comfortable, maybe after two minutes, maybe whenever. But but then to, just to continue to hold still and then often the physical discomfort, the pain will become the object of awareness, right? The meditation object because it's predominant. It seems to be asking for attention. The attention wants to go to the pain, so why not? So maybe we started with the breath, but now just... The mind has enough balance, enough samadhi to not react to the physical discomfort, but to be able to be with the sensations, the throbbing, the burning, whatever. Right? And, it, and we can really contemplate you know, what the Buddha was talking about there. Where we see that tendency towards eye-making, right? the conceit that I have this pain, that this pain is me, that somehow there's a me and I related to this pain. And and then it can, even ordinary pain can be completely unbearable. 20 more minutes, no way, right? That idea of me sitting with this pain for 20 minutes or whatever time is left, it, it exists, it shows up, our subjective experience is like not workable. It's that hell realm. So it's really interesting to see, like to confirm that when there is that mind-making, that eye-making, life, the moment becomes really unworkable, really hard to bear. The heart feels burdened. And then we'll, you know, we'll just notice with practice, like 
couple people mentioned, Mike, and I didn't catch your name. Roberta mentioned, you know, about just the mind shifting into a different space, right? Because of the process of insight, the supporting, it wasn't accidental. Somehow, over the course of your practice, direct, you know, conscious practice, indirect practice, the supporting conditions were there for that shift in understanding, right? Even if we don't understand what the supporting conditions were exactly, they were there. And the mind shifted into a different way of relating, where it wasn't turning the experience, projecting a sense of self and I-making and my-making. And so what is pain? What is physical pain? Absence of the I-making and mind-making. So the way we um, unhook from that deep habit of I-making and mind-making around physical pain is we get interested in the details of the present moment. We connect with the ordinary arising and passing of sensation, of sound, of thought, doesn't actually matter. What matters is the sort of the trusting being open and in that openness, the open awareness of the present moment, noticing the elements, the movement of body, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing, and the movement of mind perceiving, feeling tone, the flow of feeling tone, the flow of mental formations, got to get my pinky down, and the flow of consciousness of things being known. Right. So it's the activity of the body and the activity of the mind. So when we're able to trust that open space of the present moment, the awareness, the knowing, it's like this, this is being known. It's just the movement of body the movement of mind. And because we're noticing this as being, then there's really no room for the mind to neurotically insert or project self. And all we go, this kind of shocking thing that Roberta and Mike point to is that shift from being really in an oppressed state to a lot of space, a lot of freedom. And it kind of blows the mind the mind's mind, because I thought I was a suffering being. I was pretty sure I was a suffering being. And all of a sudden, we're experiencing the moment as not being a suffering being. And that inconsistency doesn't make sense with self-view. Because the presumption is, if I'm really being oppressed here, if I'm really a suffering being, that that just wouldn't disappear. That doesn't make sense from the point of view of self-view. But self-view was a construction like a house of cards. And when the conditions are just right, that construction that felt very oppressive and as real as anything ever feels real. But it's not so different than being in a nightmare, which feels very real, and then being woken up. Right? And then... That's why, you know, in this tradition we talk about waking up because it, that metaphor of waking up from a dream is a useful metaphor for this process. We're living under the influence of all of our projections of what's happening, but that's just what they are, projections. It's a compelling habit, but it's just a habit of mind, and it can fall apart the more we train the mind to trust being open to the activity of body being known and the activity of mind being known. So really work on that. That's your homework and that uh, could be what you want to share when we break into small groups next week. It's just little moments where you got yourself in a pickle where life felt he- heavy. It's financial insecurity, reacting to what's going on in the world or whatever it might be. Little big problems, doesn't matter. But then in that experience of feeling oppressed by life, the self, there's a self who has a problem, a self that feels heavy. This is, it feels very real. Like really take some time to confirm that this feels heavy for me. The suffering I'm experiencing feels very personal. Really confirm. It's sort of like waking up in a dream 
where you're having a sort of nightmare, but now you're aware, okay, I'm having a life is hard. This is, you know, this is heavy. This is difficult. I'm afraid. I don't like this. I want this to last. So it could even be a good experience, but you're tight about wanting it to last, wanting to keep it, not wanting to go away. And then you, you, you know, apply the cure, right, which is, okay, I'm going to trust opening instead of like, because from the self point of view, I want to fix it, but I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not opening to try to fix it. I'm opening because this is my life right now, and I, I truly want to connect. And in the sense, I want to see what I'm not seeing. So there's a little bit of this confidence that comes from the Buddha's pointing out instructions that there's something here that we're not seeing clearly. So there's a kind of humility <clears throat> I think I talked about last week. Okay, I'm going to open. And to help open, I'm going to just notice, like you could use the anchor of your breath, whole body, hearing, even the activity of thoughts. But it's just the activity of body being known, activity of mind being known. So whether you go to a particular meditation anchor or you're just noticing whatever's predominant moment by moment, it doesn't really matter so much. What really matters is replacing the mental activity and the identification with the selfing of mental activity with a kind of trusting being open and in that openness to sustain it, just activity being known. Activity of the body, activity of the mind. And that whatever self appears in that open space, it is just the next thing being known. The next thing being known. So even if you show up and you're totally, you know, feeling a, a, a small child frightened, you know, whatever that sort of poignant selfing might be, that's a thought being known. No, no, there's a feel. Oh, that's a feeling being felt. It's just this being known. It's just that arising and passing. This is what's real. This is real. It's as real as anything is real. And I'm not going to presume any that it's more than what I directly, immediately experience. It's this being known. And the interesting thing about really sensing that flow is that naturally life the movement of life becomes trustworthy because there's a sense it knows what it's doing and it doesn't, it doesn't, life experiencing doesn't require anything other than what's already there. So it really evokes, in terms of this thing we call me, knowing, it doesn't evoke the need for a self. I mean, that's kind of the insight, not just that, this moment doesn't refer back, but this moment doesn't need any intervention. doesn't mean the moment's perfect. doesn't mean there's not suffering in that kind of more ordinary sense. It just means that the moment doesn't need anything projected onto it. And that's such a relief. It's not so much that my life is difficult, but the idea that I have to live my life makes it appear really oppressive being me. But if I don't have to live my life, it's not oppressive at all. And it's the same thing with, you know, any construction of the mind. Things are heavy because of what is projected. Not Things aren't heavy in themselves. And I'll just leave with this last statement from uh, one of our Western teachers and translators, a Buddhist monk, um, Ajahn Tanisaro, often he's referred to as Ajahn Jeff. And uh, one of his teachers, uh, the way he would say, or one of his teacher's teachers, I think, had this really li uh, wonderful line, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. So life is heavy when the mind selfs, when the mind is owning or projecting self on it. So that's just something to play with as we go forward. But we'll leave it here.
Santa clock, just take a moment, let go of the words. Time for a breath or two together. Trusting the space here and now. Wishing us all a good week of practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.